All right, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It is Friday, March 17th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, March Madness, St. Patrick's Day, quite a Friday to kick off this weekend. No work is getting done, Mosh, except here at Mo News. Uh, So let's get to the headlines. So much news, actually. All right, let's go to the videotape. The Pentagon releases unclassified video of Russian jets intercepting a U.S. drone over the Black Sea and says that the Kremlin approved the action. The first NATO member, Poland, says it will supply Ukraine with fighter jets. And some senators are pushing the U.S. to do the same. The latest on the banking crisis, some of the country's biggest banks are spending billions of dollars to shore up a smaller bank, First Republic, it's all relative, though. They do have more than $200 billion, but these days, <laughs> those are the banks that need help. Oh, that measly bank. Uh, still, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tells senators that the banking system is sound. She's back. Stormy Daniels speaks to New York's district attorney why this could signal that a Trump indictment is imminent. There is a big blob of stinky seaweed heading to a Florida beach near you. We'll explain. And uh, the beaches in the Northeast, not totally off the hook. Okay, we finally know what Ben Affleck was really saying to J-Lo at the Grammys, at least according to Ben Affleck. And chat GPT keeps getting smarter. But how smart is too smart? Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. A little history today, Jill, on St. Patrick, and a couple classic songs celebrate some birthdays today. And what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. Jill, I have a lot of Ted Lasso to catch up on. Okay, let's get to our top story. As they say on The Housewives, show me the receipts. The Russians denied that they interfered with an American drone, so the U.S. responded with some video evidence from the drone itself on Thursday. The Pentagon released declassified footage of what it said was a Russian fighter jet intercepting an American drone over the Black Sea, leading to its ultimate crash. So the drone was flying in international airspace earlier this week. The footage was filmed from the drone's onboard camera. It was edited for length by the Pentagon, but the Pentagon says it still shows the events in chronological order. The Pentagon says it shows a Russian jet approaching the drone and releasing a long plume of what appears to be fuel. A few seconds later, either the same Russian jet comes back or perhaps a different jet does the same thing. But that time, it looks like the jet collides with the drone. The feed then goes down. And when the feed comes back online, it looks like one of the drone's propellers has been damaged. The U.S. military says it was then forced to down the drone in the sea. Russia is denying that their jets interacted with the drone at all. They have previously said it went down after making a sharp maneuver. This whole incident, though, has only heightened the already heightened tension between Moscow and Washington. Moshe, as we talked about earlier this week, the drone is not like a drone that you buy at the store and fly in your backyard. It costs 32 million bucks. Its wingspan alone is 66 feet. It's basically the size of a small plane. Yeah, if this drone is flying over your backyard, Jill, you're in trouble because typically it's armed with various missiles. Though again, here, the U.S. was flying it over international airspace, which is why they're so upset that Russia effectively broke the rules here, interfered with it, uh, effectively attacking it. U.S. officials tell NBC that they believe the Kremlin leadership had approved the aggressive action of those two Russian jets involved in the incident. It was an apparent effort to throw the drone off course or disable its surveillance capabilities. Responding to all of this, Russia says the U.S. is to blame for all of this, warning Washington to cease 
any hostile surveillance flights near its borders that are helping Ukraine. They have repeatedly voiced concerns about U.S. intelligence flights near the Crimean Peninsula. That's the area Russia seized from Ukraine in 2014, illegally annexed. They now consider it theirs, and they don't like U.S. surveillance flights anywhere near there. The spokesperson for the National Security Council, John Kirby, here in the U.S., says the Russian jets were deliberately trying to get close to the drone. He says what we don't know is how intentional the collision with the drone was. It is possible that this was just a reckless, incompetent piece of aviation by the pilot. The incident is the first known direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia since Russia first invaded Ukraine last year. So U.S. officials say Russia is already in the area where that drone went down trying to recover it. They think it will be extremely difficult to do so, though. That's because the water in some parts of the sea is about 5,000 feet deep. But even if they do recover the drone, they say there's really no military value left there. Underscoring just how serious this is, though, for the first time in months, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Russian defense minister spoke to each other directly Additionally, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley and the Chief of the Russian General Staff also spoke, Austin saying, quote, I think it's really key that we're able to pick up the phone and engage each other, and I think that will help to prevent miscalculation going forward. Mosh, that is really the concern here, that this turns into some kind of direct conflict. In this case, Russia argued that the U.S., as you kind of were mentioning, provoked this incident because they were ignoring Russian flight restrictions that had been imposed because of what's going on in Ukraine. And also they argue that because the U.S. and allies are giving weapons and sharing intel with Ukraine, that they have effectively become involved with the war. So you could start to see their line of reasoning here, how Russia could rationalize or would rationalize some type of bigger attack on the U.S., whether directly or indirectly. Yeah, at the same time, this was international waters, and that is respected through a whole number of treaties. Uh, And we have seen a number of times, Jill, throughout the last year, where we feel escalation is happening, where the Russians are threatening. I mean, even at times, Putin and some of his uh, top military officers threatening potential nuclear action here. I mean, given how poorly the Russians are doing in Ukraine, they really want the U.S. and allies out as quickly as possible because they literally are fighting losing thousands of soldiers over a few inches of ground in Ukraine right now. While we're talking about more support for Ukraine here, we got some news this week about some more European allies helping the Ukrainians. Poland announced on Thursday it's giving Ukraine several MiG-29 fighter jets. It's the first NATO member to lend fighter jets to the Ukrainians, and it could give cover to other NATO members to provide warplanes. Poland says the first planes being handed over were actually inherited from East Germany. Remember back in the day before 89, there was a West Germany and East Germany. Poland inherited those from the late 80s, early 90s after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And they're coming to an end of their working lives after 30 years, but they're still operational. And so they're being handed over to the Ukrainians here. Slovakia, Finland, and the Netherlands have all said they would also consider supplying Ukraine with warplanes here. And these MiG jets are particularly useful because they're Russian-made. So the Ukrainian pilots already know how to fly them. And so it would be pretty seamless for them as opposed to U.S. war jets. And it does come as the U.S. so far has refused to supply any F-16s to the Ukrainians. That could change at some point in the near future. A group of U.S. senators from both parties, Republicans and Democrats, sent a letter to the U.S. Defense Secretary asking for more information about what it would take to send some F-16 jets Ukraine. We've talked on this podcast before that we've also here in the U.S. been training 
a number of Ukrainian troops on how to operate Patriot missile batteries and other military gear we're giving them. And we continue to see this drip drop here. It began with defensive weapons. Now you're seeing some senators uh, who are pushing for military jets to the Ukrainians. They say it could be a potential game changer on the battlefield for Ukraine. Jill, it is coming as we are seeing a more pronounced domestic debate at home, especially within the Republican Party. Earlier this week, likely 2024 presidential candidate Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida said in response to a a questionnaire from Tucker Carlson of Fox News that Russia-Ukraine is just a territorial dispute and not a vital national interest. A number of Republicans condemning that view this week and the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page said that it could be Ron DeSantis's first big mistake, writing that his view is, quote, flirting with GOP isolationism that has emerged from time to time in history and has actually been an electoral cul-de-sac. The party's isolationism in the 1930s consigned it to decades in the wilderness. Yeah, their view is that Republicans opposing World War II intervention back then made a huge mistake. They would only be bailed out by the fact that General Eisenhower, the uh, big U.S. general who was the victor of World War II, decided to run as a Republican for president, helping that party deal with the fact that they didn't want to intervene in World War II. And so you have this ongoing debate among Republicans. It'll be very interesting to watch how this unfolds in this election year coming up here, Jill. You have the Trump-DeSantis wing who push more of an isolationist stance, like we don't need to get involved with the rest of the world. Then you have sort of the traditional Republicans and most Democrats right now who are like, if we don't stop Putin here, he will continue into Europe. So essentially giving aid to Ukraine prevents us from having to put U.S. soldiers at risk sometime in the near future. What's interesting is that some of these conservatives are on the same page as progressive Democrats. It's not often that you have them agreeing uh, on issues. Yeah, it's so interesting. Sometimes we talk about politics as a spectrum from far right to far left. Sometimes on certain issues, it seems more like a circle, Jill, where if you're on the far right and you're on the far left, sometimes there's agreement. And so you do see that argument from anti-war liberals that sort of reminds you of some of the same things you hear DeSantis saying, which is, we have issues here at home. Why are we spending so much abroad? Why are we intervening in in various wars, et cetera? And then you sort of have the center, which the center Republicans and the centrist Democrats all saying, you know, this is important, which is kind of the traditional post-World War II U.S. is sort of the police officer of the world. And we have to uh, stop these uh, tyrants before things get worse. Okay, Moshe, a lot more to get to on the podcast. For now, though, let's get to some of our sponsors, starting with Athletic Greens. I have been taking their AG1 supplement in the mornings, the Athletic Greens AG1 powder, just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy, it is quick, and it lets you get on with your day knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer. You could also get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, let's also talk about Harry's here. Harry's is a brand I've been using for years now for a great shave. My wife actually found their aftershave a couple of years ago and I've been a loyal customer ever since. I then recently tried their shaving cream as well. And now I am so excited 
that they are joining us as a partner with a special deal for Mo News listeners. I just got one of their five blade razors as well. It has a nice weighted handle. And what's great is with their Truman Shave Trial Set, you can get the shaving gel and the razor. It is a $15 value that for a limited time, you can get for $3 over at harrys.com slash Mo News. So rare these days to hear that anything is $3. Again, the Truman Shave Trial Set includes a five-blade razor, a nice weighted hand, foaming shave gel, a travel cover. You can schedule replacement blade delivery whenever you need them with refills for as little as $2. I am genuinely a big fan of Harry's, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. So I'll tell you how to get it one more time. That $15 Truman Shave Trial Set right now available for just $3 over at harrys.com slash monews. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com slash monews. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start with the banking crisis from the Wall Street Journal. The biggest banks in the U.S. have agreed to a $30 billion joint rescue of First Republic Bank. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, among those who will deposit $5 billion of their own money each into First Republic, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, as well as some regional banks like PNC Financial Services, U.S. Bank Corp., and Truist Financial would all kick in between $1 billion and $2.5 billion. So what's happened in the past few days in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is that a lot of people took the money that they had at mid-sized banks like First Republic, and then deposited it with the bigger banks. So most, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy here. People think that their smaller bank or their relatively smaller bank could collapse. So they take their money out, they put it in a bigger bank, forcing the smaller (laughs) bank to actually collapse. Yeah, bank runs are pretty simple here, folks. Our banking system is built on a model where they don't keep all your money in full for everyone to show up and take it out in the same day. They take your deposits, they loan it out, they invest it. And the shame here is that a lot of regular people, small businesses, et cetera, get better rates, loans uh, from smaller banks. So many people are working against their own self-interest here by making the bigger banks even bigger. Uh, It came out earlier this week that Bank of America got $15 billion in deposits alone in the first couple days of the week. The other thing is that our banking system's not built on a model for digital banking. So with previous bank runs, in many cases, people had to go to their physical bank, wait online, get their money. Here, you know, within seconds, you could just type a few things in, hit click, and then all of your money could transfer. So the banking system not set up for that. It's certainly interesting as they look at new regulations and rules, Jill, if they're going to have to consider that, right? That uh, will they have to limit what you can do on an app? Uh, just because in the world of Twitter and social media, I mean, we saw what happened to Silicon Valley Bank in the year 2023 could not have happened 20 years ago, given technology and uh, the lack of smartphones back then. But here we are. And so that'll be among the things they'll be talking about in Washington as they try to figure out, you know, post-collapse is always how we have to figure out what are the new rules, how to prevent this from happening in the future. In the meantime, this deal you mentioned of the bigger banks effectively bailing out First Republic. And by the way, when we talk about smaller banks, First Republic has more than $200 billion in assets, or at least it did at the end of 2022. So that is, quote unquote, air quotes here, smaller. And so what's interesting about this deal, you know, I mentioned Bank of America getting $15 billion alone in the past couple of days. Some of that conceivably came from First Republic. So this is effectively the banks, some of these bigger banks, giving some money back to First Republic that they've gotten from depositors. Now, this deal is set to run for several months here until things calm down. 
Interestingly, First Republic said on Sunday that it had $70 billion in available liquidity, as in cash on hand, not counting any additional funds it could get from the Fed. But that was not enough for investors who were dumping the stock this week, depositors who were fleeing. There was still this sort of fear that's been happening earlier in the week about smaller banks, as we've discussed. And so what's interesting here is this is not the government, like we saw over the weekend, stepping in, but other banks supporting a smaller bank. And the hope is that that will help engender trust, help build trust back in the system. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on Capitol Hill Thursday telling the Senate Finance Committee that the U.S. banking system remains, quote, sound after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. She also told senators that government refunds for uninsured deposits, like we're seeing with SVB and Signature Bank, are not going to be extended to every bank that fails, only to the ones that pose a systemic risk to the financial system. Yeah, that was a concern here is that by guaranteeing all the deposits, for instance, above 250 grand at Silicon Valley Bank this week, that this is the FDIC essentially guaranteeing all deposits way beyond the insurance limit. She says, no, they are going to draw a line. By the way, we don't have enough money for that, Jill. I think I've seen <laughs> estimates that there are 17 to $20 trillion in deposits in the system. And insurance right now only covers a couple trillion of that. So again, advice to everyone, bank runs are self-fulfilling prophecies, and we just don't have enough money in the system uh, to be able to accommodate that. So let's hope that these moves uh, make for a calmer week next week, Jill, though we should note the Federal Reserve is meeting next week. And the big decision we're waiting from them next week is whether they're going to pause interest rate hikes because of all this chaos. And right now, opinions differ on that. From Politico, Stormy Daniels speaks to New York prosecutors as possible Trump indictment looms. Daniels is the adult film actress at the center of the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation of former President Trump. Her attorney says that she spoke to prosecutors this week as their probe enters its final stages. Daniels, if you remember, received $130,000 in so-called hush money at the height of the 2016 presidential campaign. At the time of that first campaign, she was ready to go public with allegations that she had sex with Trump back in 2006. So that money was paid to keep her quiet. Her lawyer says she agreed to make herself available as a witness. The DA not commenting, but all signs point to an indictment. And most, regardless of what you think of Trump and this investigation, he calls it a witch hunt. This means that he would be booked and have a mugshot and be fingerprinted, potentially as the presidential election ramps up. Yeah, allegedly there would be no handcuffs, no perp walk. Ostensibly, uh, he would turn himself in. But a mugshot is part of the process regardless. So that would be a pretty remarkable image. The prosecutors in New York are looking at potential felony charges against Trump. And that's related to how his real estate company, the Trump Organization, made the hush money payment. They say it was falsely recorded as a legal expense. Now, these are low-level felony charges, falsifying documents, but they do carry a potential maximum sentence of four years in prison. Though given the circumstances here, a judge, if there's an indictment uh, and he's found guilty, could just uh, give him probation with no jail time. So Stormy Daniels' meeting with prosecutors comes after a flurry of activity this week, signaling the indictment is likely imminent. Earlier this week, the grand jury also examined evidence from Trump's one-time attorney and consigliere, Michael Cohen. Those are his words, not mine. Cohen was the one who actually facilitated the payment to Stormy Daniels and has said in court that he paid hush money to the accuser in coordination and at the direction of the former president himself. As to the details here, Cohen and prosecutors say the company paid him a total of $420,000 to reimburse him 
for the payment to Daniels. They again called it a legal expense. Falsifying business records can be a misdemeanor under state law or a felony if it's considered a more serious crime. And that's the issue here. The prosecutors, by the way, you, you've seen Michael Cohen in the news. They charged him, found him guilty in a separate case related to these payouts. He served some jail time briefly and is now testifying against Trump. Trump, for his part, has denied the Daniels affair, says she was trying to extort money out of him, says that Cohen's a liar, that this whole thing is fabricated against him for political purposes and uh, denies he did anything wrong here. Again, just important to remember, as you mentioned, Cohen went to jail in some ways because of this case. And so there are questions as to his reliability as a witness because he admitted in that case that he had lied on Trump's behalf. So he is a literal convicted liar, as Trump refers to him. In this case, Cohen is saying he just wants to do right by things. He admitted that he lied on behalf of Trump. And now, you know, he feels he has to come clean here. And what's interesting about this case is the grand jury has effectively invited Trump to testify in this case. He has refused, says he wants nothing to do with it. And that means this thing will come to an end without his official testimony here. Uh, And again, we could be seeing an indictment in New York anytime in the coming weeks. Okay, a story that could put a damper on spring break, at least in Florida, from the Tampa Bay Times, a giant blob of seaweed spanning 5,000 miles and weighing an estimated 6.1 million tons threatens to blanket Florida beaches and Caribbean islands with smelly piles of decaying brown goop. Okay, Mosh, this is an actual story. This isn't... I feel like I'm reading like a fictional horror story. Um, Sargassum is the scientific name for the brown seaweed. It's often found along South Florida beaches. It could start piling up in the Florida Keys in the next few days. Scientists expect that Miami Beach and West Palm Beach will become a hot spot later in the season. The season runs from March through October. Atlantic beaches and states to the north could also see this seaweed. It is important to mention it's not going to be an everyday problem everywhere. It's worse when the tide is high and the wind is blowing in from east to west. Uh, Still just kind of ew. (laughs) We should note if you've been down to Cancun in recent years, uh, it's developed down there. So this is not a new site, but we're talking about is the size of this bloom. It is shaping up to be one of the biggest ones ever recorded since 2011. Since 2011, a combination of human activity, like putting sewage and fertilizer runoff into the water, plus climate change, has created a string of these unusually large seaweed blobs. Every year for the past five years has set a new record for the biggest blob. And as you mentioned, Jill, now we're talking about a 5,000-mile-wide blob here. The seaweed itself is harmless, but it does harbor jellyfish, sea lice, other stinging and biting sea life. And when it comes ashore in big quantity, uh, the smell is terrible. It can create headaches. Scientists say it rots under the Florida sunshine quickly. It smells very bad and chases away tourists. Plus, seaweed, very expensive to clean up. Important info if you live in these areas or if you're planning a vacation there. Speaking of vacations from Gizmodo, employers are allowed to dock salaried employees paid time off. This is according to a ruling from Circuit Court of Appeals judges unanimously decided this week in a first of its kind case. Okay, so the court ruling that paid time off accumulated by workers is not a part of their salary under U.S. wage law. So this means employers can take away paid leave when salaried workers do not meet productivity quotas. It reasserts the stance that no American employee, salaried or otherwise, 
is entitled to paid leave. The ruling was in response to a class action lawsuit filed by workers from Beata Home Care. It's an at-home health and personal care service for seniors. In that suit, which was initially filed in 2016, the plaintiff group argued that Beata's system of subtracting from their PTO when they fail to meet time-based productivity quotas was a violation of federal wage law. Again, the court ruling against them. Yeah, so this is the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. This could go up to the Supreme Court. They ruled, the judges here ruled, that while a salary is a fixed amount of compensation paid out at regular intervals, paid time off is a fringe benefit that has no effect on the worker's wages and can be paid irregularly, such as when an employee leaves a company. So again here, they can't dock your salary for lack of productivity, but they can dock you on PTO. That's according to the judges here. It's notable, Jill, because some states are now passing laws related to paid time off. Illinois this week became the third state in the nation to require employers to offer workers paid time off for any reason. Illinois workers will now be able to use their earned time off for any reason once they've worked for 90 days, and they will not have to provide a reason for their absence. That now means Illinois joins Maine and Nevada in mandating paid time off. So that could change things for employees, at least in those three states, if they deal with a similar circumstance. Okay, from Vox, when chat GPT came out in November, it took the world by storm. And earlier this week, the maker of the artificial intelligence program, OpenAI, released an even more advanced version of chat GPT technology. They're calling it GPT-4. The company says this update is another milestone in the advancement of AI. The new technology has the potential to improve how people learn new languages, how blind people process images, and even how we do our taxes. Jill, I could use that last part, especially as we uh, hit tax deadline. OpenAI also claims that the new model supports a chat bot that's more factual, creative, concise, can understand images instead of just text. In a live stream demo of GPT-4 this week, the co-founder of OpenAI, Greg Brockman, showed some new use cases for the technology, including the ability to be given a hand-drawn mock-up of a website, and then from that, generate code for a functional site in a matter of seconds. Whoa. Jill, it's really remarkable that we've gotten here. I mean, the first one was released in November. We're now in March and we're at ChatGPT4 in a matter of just a few months here. That example you mentioned of ChatGPT4, they essentially fed it a cartoon image of a squirrel holding a camera and asked the AI why the image was funny. GPT-4 responds, the image is funny because it shows a squirrel holding a camera and taking a photo of a nut as if it were a professional photographer. It's a humorous situation because squirrels typically eat nuts and we don't expect them to use a camera or act like humans. So they see this sort of capability as incredibly useful to people who are blind or visually impaired to be able to explain imagery. Because not only can it now describe the images, but can also communicate meaning or context behind them. So this obviously presented as a very positive thing, but it certainly uh, creates fear among others that this AI keeps getting smarter and smarter. Among other things, Jill, ChatGPT4 can now do, it passed the bar exam in the estimated 90th percentile. It had previously only gotten the 10th percentile in the legal bar exam, now 90th percentile. It also aced a whole bunch of other complicated exams. Apparently, it scored a 5 in AP Statistics. It had previously gotten a 3, a 5 in AP Macroeconomics. It had gotten a 2 previously, uh, and even a 92 in an intro sommelier test. You know, like the wine test, by the way, it can't become a grand sommelier because that actually would involve the computer tasting the wine, which clearly it can't do. But apparently it can uh, 
do very well the sommelier test, though it does note that so far its command of English is not great, not doing great on the advanced placement English exams yet. I'm glad you mentioned that about the wine because I'm just thinking, how does it take that? T- I, I, I assumed that it would have to taste the wine um, for the first test. I guess not, just just the second one. I guess it did really well on the written exam here, Jill, because obviously limited so far, GPT-4. I can't taste wine and tell you what it is, but honestly, given how quickly they're developing this, maybe that will happen sometime soon. And it comes as Microsoft, which is a big investor in ChatGPT, laid off its entire ethics and society team within the artificial intelligence organization as part of a recent round of layoffs that affected about 10,000 employees. This move now leaves Microsoft without a dedicated team to ensure that its AI principles are closely tied to a product design. The company, meanwhile, claims that its overall investment in responsibility work is increasing despite the recent layoffs. Still a bad look, though. We're going to lay off the ethics team as this AI (laughs) keeps getting smarter and smarter. What could go wrong, Jill? Okay, Moshe from The Hollywood Reporter. We finally know what was up with Ben Affleck at the Grammys. Remember all those memes about how unhappy he was? Or if you just used your own eyes and watched the show, you could tell that he was kind of miserable. Okay, he tells the media outlet that he swears he did have fun at the Grammys. Despite the miserable Ben memes, he sat down with The Hollywood Reporter. He brushed off how he constantly creates viral moments. The internet had a field day when Affleck and Lopez were caught on camera seemingly in a tiff. And while the actor chalked some of that up to a husband and wife thing, he revealed what he really said to Lopez in that moment. Are you ready? Jill, I've been waiting five (laughs) weeks since the Grammys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So he says he saw Grammy host Trevor Noah approach And he was like, oh, God, they're framing us in this shot. But I didn't know that they were rolling. So I leaned into her, to J-Lo, and I was like, as soon as they start rolling, I'm going to slide away from you and leave you sitting next to Trevor. She goes, you better effing not leave. That is a husband and wife thing, he continued. So that was one memorable moment of the Grammys. There was also <laughs> uh, the images of him just like so unhappy during the Motown reunion where like literally everyone <laughs> in the crowd was like clapping, etc. So he did pop in this interview to say he didn't know at times who a performer was saying, quote, I mean, some of it is like, all right, who is this at? Like, I don't keep up. My wife does, obviously. And yeah, it is your wife's work event. And I've gone to events and been pissed off. I've gone and been bored. I've gone to award shows and been drunk a bunch, but nobody ever once said I'm drunk. Is he seriously calling the Grammys his wife's work event? Is that real? (laughs) That's the the quote. That's that's between quotes in The Hollywood Reporter. Oh my Uh, God. I still think though, Jill, as an actor, uh, you would have expected him to simulate some level of enjoyment. By the way, some of these moments where he was so upset, like happened in the first hour of the show. (laughs) Regardless, uh, this is Ben's explanation to The Hollywood Reporter. uh, And we were talking about this before we started taping the podcast. It's like, but when were the Grammys? They feel like so long ago. I was like, oh, February 5th, like five weeks ago were the Grammys. So we're finally getting some clarity here. I mean, you literally have Smokey Robinson singing his heart out on stage. Then flash to Ben Affleck, who looks like he's in a Zoom video for on hour 10. <laughs> right. And he's saying in the quote, like, I don't keep up. My wife does. It's your wife work event. Like, I don't know everyone oh all God. the time. Like, Ben, you got to know some basic people, brother. Have you listened to the radio? 
All right, so our take care on the Mo News podcast. We're not buying the explanation. Yeah. Like. I, we like to say we don't give our opinions, but I feel like except we're... on this, I can't do it like a Walter Cronkite here, Jill. I gotta, I gotta tell you how I really feel. <laughs> if we're gonna have opinions, let it be about Ben Affleck <laughs> and J Lo. All right, now to on this day in history, on this Friday, March seventeenth. Of course, let's begin with St. Patrick's Day. On this day in the year four sixty one, St. Patrick. The patron saint of Ireland died, according to legend. He was born in Britain and then captured by the Irish. He would eventually be released from prison in Ireland and effectively convert most of Ireland to Christianity. Now the day of his passing is a feast day celebrated widely in Ireland and the U.S. And this is a fun fact I learned, Jill. The first recorded parade honoring St. Patrick was not held in Ireland, but held in the U.S. in what is now St. Augustine, Florida, back in 1601. One other fun St. Patrick's Day tradition, the dying of the Chicago River Green uh, started on this day in 1962, about 51 years ago today. Moshe, I just think about that scene from The Fugitive where Harrison Ford's character is lost in a sea of green in Chicago as the river is also green. And then there's that memorable quote, if they could dye the river green today, why can't they dye it blue the other days? <laughs> there was a time when the Chicago River was pretty grimy, and we can get to the history of Chicago River another time, Jill. As a Chicago native, I have some fun history on that. Speaking of Chicago, on this day in 1995, Michael Jordan returned to the Bulls from his first retirement when he went to go play baseball for about a year and a half. He helped then lead the Bulls to three more championships with his return. And Jill, just as a sign of the times, his return to the NBA in March 1995 was marked by a mass fax that his uh, agents sent out to media outlets with two words, I'm back. But just think about that. That's where we were in 1995. You had to send a fax to literally every single media outlet to announce things. Okay, that is my fax machine impression in case you couldn't tell. That was the sound happening across the world in March of 95 as Michael Jordan returned. And one more historical item of note here. This weekend marks 20 years of the war in Iraq. On March 19th, 2003, President George W. Bush ordered airstrikes on Baghdad, launching the war in Iraq to oust dictator Saddam Hussein, who was believed at the time to be manufacturing weapons of mass destruction. We would find out later that was not true. To this day now, Jill, we still have troops in Iraq 20 years later. All right, now to some music history news. Turning 40 years old today, David Bowie's Let's Dance out on this day in 1983. This weekend in the year 2000, 23 years ago, See My Name by Destiny's Child reached number one on the Billboard charts. And one more thing to make uh, millennials feel a bit old, the show Punked premiered 20 years ago today with Ashton Kutcher on MTV, March 17th, 2003. Moshe, I already feel old, but I, I guess I just feel older. So thanks. Just letting you know that punk is now as old as disco was when you were growing up in the 90s, Jill. <laughs> okay, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. That means it's time for what we are watching, reading, and eating this weekend. Uh, Most, you want to kick it off? What are you watching? Sure. March Madness Basketball. Uh, it's the four days of the year when there's just a million games going on on multiple channels. Always fun to watch. Rooting for some upsets. And then there is that new season of Ted Lasso. That is out this week, uh, premiered, I think, on Wednesday. Uh, and I have a lot to catch up on in season two right now before I head there. Okay, Moshe, I know you posted on the Instagram account about the backstory about how Ted Lasso came to be. Uh, fill us in. Yeah, Jill. So long story short here, Brendan Hunt, who acts in the show as the assistant coach, also a co-creator, 
back in 2001, while he was doing a comedy in Europe, becomes obsessed with soccer. He then comes back to the U.S., joins a comedy club where he's uh, seeing and becomes really close friends with Jason Sudeikis. And he won't stop talking about soccer. And Sudeikis is like, I don't get it. I don't get it. And during that time, while they're gaming, while they're hanging out, he comes up with the Ted Lasso character as he tries to make sense of soccer. Fast forward then to 2013, NBC here in the U.S. buys rights to the Premier League to show soccer games here in the U.S. So they enlist Sudeikis and his Ted Lasso character to be in commercials to promote soccer. So then that leads Hunt and Sudeikis to shop around the idea of a show to develop it further. They shop it out. Everyone, basically all the networks say, no, we're not interested in this. So they then partner with the creator of Scrubs, Bill Lawrence, to make it more of a workplace ensemble comedy. Finally, Apple picks it up and there you go. History is made. But this story goes back 20 years of development from ideation. It's always very cool to hear how these ideas came about. And I think that might be why it works, because it is a workplace ensemble show, not necessarily about the sport. A lot of people might be turned off if it was just really about soccer. Yes, especially here in America, where soccer is not one of our favorite sports. Jill, what have you been watching? Okay, so I've been watching Netflix's new documentary about the disappearance of flight MH370. The Malaysian Airlines flight went missing somewhere above the Indian Ocean in March 2014. 239 people were on board. There was this extensive search, no real answers. Some wreckage was found, but there's some questions about it, at least from some of the family members of the victims. The show looks at a few different theories. In general, though, just mind blown at how this plane seemingly disappeared. And for the families of the victims, even after all of this time, we are talking years later, there is still no closure and they are still out there investigating. Yeah, it's it's really crazy that it's been nine years. Uh, and they I think they called off the search a few years ago and now there's a push for them to renew the search. But again, I know there were questions, Jill, about the pilot at some point and, and his mental health and maybe his motivation in taking this plane out to sea. That's one of the original theories. A lot of people don't think that it holds water, um, and, and they they actually think it was some type of cover-up, maybe even by the United States. Mm. So I, I highly recommend. You actually would love it, Mosh, like, <laughs> between the news aspect of it and just the, the mystery, it's right up your alley. All right, Jill, I'm putting it on the list. Jill, what are you reading this weekend? I'm going to be reading an article in the New York Times. It's called The New Primetime for TV News. Afternoons. The biggest draw on Fox News is no longer Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity. It's The Five, which is actually on at 5 p.m. And at CNN and MSNBC, the daytime shows are also outranking evening programming. This is super interesting because, especially being in news, it was always those primetime shows that were seen as like the cushiony best gig. They pay those hosts the most. But more importantly, quoted in the piece, our very own Mosh Wanunu. Yeah, the author of the piece, Michael Grinbaum from the New York Times, uh, called me last week, was like, I'm seeing this interesting trend line. Care to care to talk about your old world of cable and network news? So definitely spoke to him about it. I think there's a few reasons here, Jill, for this. One, we should keep in mind that cable news, the average age of the audience is now median age 70, meaning more than half of cable news viewers are over the age of 70. But what's interesting here in terms of this trend line, and the way i like to think about it is news is not that dissimilar from fiction from tv shows and so you tune in for a new season and if the characters change uh if the plot gets less interesting you might not tune in so in this case you know you had four years of trump then a pandemic 
The news isn't as urgent as it was for about six years. Many of the uh, primetime hosts that people were familiar with have left over the last couple of years. Uh, And just generally speaking, they're seeing an interesting trend line, Jill, where this older audience over 65 is finally adopting streaming in a real way in the last couple of years. So in all likelihood, they're getting their news fix in the afternoons and not feeling like they need to tune in past six or seven o'clock. But just very cool, Mosh, to see your name quoted in there. Jill, officially, it's our first mention of Mo News in the New York Times, which is uh, very cool for the record. It's the subject of a future on this day in history, Jill. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mosh, what are you reading? I'm obsessed with the explosion of the undersea pipelines uh, in the Baltic Sea, those pipelines that ran the Nord Stream pipelines that ran between Russia and Germany. And there's a new piece in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of focus now is on a rented yacht last September that a small group took from Germany, anonymous. They were out there at sea for two weeks. The group then returned the boat, disappeared, and suddenly explosions took place just thereafter under the water. So they're wondering whether this was some sort of covert operation. Who were those mystery people aboard the yacht? The yacht, by the way, the Andromeda. This all has the makings of a great future documentary on Netflix. All right, Jill, finally, what are we eating this weekend? Okay, there's a new burger spot on Long Island. It's called Gimme Burger. It just opened up in Oyster Bay. It only has a very few number of menu items, burgers, grilled cheese, fries, black and white milkshakes. Everything's under 10 bucks. It's supposed to be awesome. Jill, it sounds great. Let me know how it is when we make our way back onto Long Island uh, at some time in the near future. Folks, you're on Long Island. You're not in Long Island. It's an important thing that New Yorkers (laughs) uh, will correct you on. Jill, I'm also going to keep my suggestion local today. There's a place in Brooklyn called L'Apartment 4F. And it's an interesting story. It's a bakery. And they have these famous croissants now. You see lines around the corner. Lines like you wouldn't see beyond a bank run uh, these days. Just (laughs) tons of people early in the morning lined up. Not for their money, though, but for incredible croissants. It's a cool uh, pandemic story. These people started baking out of their literal apartment 4F during the pandemic, decided to turn it into a business, now have a real deal business in Brooklyn Heights, Brooklyn. uh, And they count a whole bunch of celebrities, including Paul Rudd, as their their fans. If it's good enough for Paul Rudd, it is good enough for me. Jill, short story. We actually served Paul Rudd a croissant a while back. Alex, my wife and I woke up early one day, got a box of croissants that she then went over to FedEx, where she happened to be in line behind Paul Rudd. I was outside at the time. She texted me, like, get in here immediately with the croissants. (laughs) And she offers Paul Rudd one of the croissants. He's like, are you sure? I know these are hot commodity, and it takes a while to get them. She's like, no, Paul, have whatever you want. And he literally grabs a croissant, is, like, very thankful, very nice, kind of how you'd expect Paul Rudd to be. And then he was next in line at FedEx. He had to ship something. By the way, Paul Rudd does his own shipping at FedEx. That's the other thing we learned that day. Celebrities, they're just like us. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, on that note, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Have a happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast. 